Show me enough family as you pray for the servant today. Lord God, thank you for your word. Lord, that we as a people can come together in your holy day, Lord, to hear it properly divided, Lord, to be changed by it. Lord, as so often these prayers I, I say and remind us that you promise that your word will change us. Thank you for that we are people of the Lord, that we can sit underneath it, Lord, and know that you will work through us, work through it in us. Make a pastor mind that he comes today with a lesson to prepare the Lord for the sermon. Let the theme work our way through the Gospel of Mark. Lord, knowing that uh, it will go fast because Mark is a, it's an active gospel. It's a quick gospel, Lord, full of action. Lord, in that action, we see your hand at work. Lord, let, let the hastings of that not uh, pull us away from the, the slow contemplation of what you are doing, what you have done. God. It is good to be with you today. I invite you to grab your Bibles. Uh, when you find them, turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. As Joel uh, said while he was praying, we're going to be continuing uh, through our series, The Gospel According to Mark. We're literally just taking it one little section at a time. So today we're going to read together uh, verses 1 through 22. So would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? today. I invite you to read along with me, and at the end of that reading, I'll say that this is the word of the Lord, and I invite you to respond with true praise by saying thanks be to God. Let's begin. Oh, it would help if I was in Mark and not in Matthew once. Look, <laughs> Dan's like, that's not what we're preaching today. Let's begin. And when he had returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they were thus questioning within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so they were all amazed. And glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. 
He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And he passed by, as he excuse me, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. One of the things that I love about the gospel narratives is the way in which the presence and absence of details invites us to imagine. Uh, not to let our minds go wild, mind you, but there is enough detail to uh, spark the desire for more and enough detail left out to leave room for us to begin to Imagine, or to use as a friend of mine is apt to say, our Holy Spirit captivated imagination uh, to begin to think about what it must have been like to be there on that day. Uh, the the uh, historical narratives from the Old Testament act much in the same way, where as we read the stories of the heroes of the faith in the Old Testament, we are swept up into that story. We cannot but help uh, because of the way that God created and uh, fashioned us to begin to uh, think creatively about what it must have been like to be there on that day. I think especially here, as Mark begins uh, in what is for us, what wasn't for Mark, he didn't write a big two, uh, next to what he was saying, and now chapter two, and start a whole new area. But for us, as we begin chapter two, and we go into this particular story here at the outset, the the healing of the paralytic men, man, there is there is just enough detail to really begin to paint a picture for us of what was going on on that day, and uh, it's a beautiful story of God's grace. 
uh, towards this man. And really what we have today are three sort of vignettes in this reading. Uh, verses 1 through 12, we have the story of Jesus healing the paralytic man. Uh, verses 13 through 17, we have the calling of Levi, who is also Matthew, uh, of the, the Gospel of Matthew, who was a tax collector. And then this last section that we read today, verses 18 through 22, is our third vignette, which is this discussion or questions about fasting and new patches on old garments and new wine and old wineskins and, and all the rest. And so we're going to just take a look today at these three different vignettes and see what the Lord has for us here. Uh, before we jump into it, I want to just remind you why we are doing this. Uh, it is important for us to uh, periodically return to these gospel narratives because it is here in the gospels that we are painted a picture of Christ for us, of Jesus, our Lord, for us. And uh, as we come to these gospels, we are able to fully look upon him. Uh, remind you of the passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, where Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he says that it is by beholding the glory of God that we are changed from one degree of glory to another. If we take the rest of Paul's writings, we understand that when he refers to the glory of God, he is talking about the embodiment of that glory, who is Jesus himself, of whom Paul also said that it was in Jesus, in Christ, that the fullness of the glory of God was pleased to dwell. And so if we want to behold the glory of God, we have no other place to look except to look at Jesus himself, to look at Christ in him, we are able to behold the fullness of the glory of God. And as we have begun this Lenten season, this week marks the second week in the season of Lent that will lead us uh, to the Easter season and then from there on to Pentecost. Uh, as we want to contemplate, as we approach Easter and think about the passion of our Lord, to think about his suffering, to think about the things that he endured, it is helpful for us to look at how he got there. Uh, I think it's it's quite often can be the case that we uh, just, you know, the year goes on and suddenly it's like, boom, it's Palm Sunday, it's Passion Week, it's Easter Sunday, and bing, bang, boom, it's over and it's done. And about the time you start thinking, Wow, you know, it would have been great this year if I had taken some time uh, to think about everything that led up to this moment that Jesus was crucified. It's over. It's finished. And we're moving on. And so uh, this year we wanted to be faithful to come to the gospel narrative, to spend this time leading up to uh, the season of Easter, looking at Christ, looking at the person and the work of Jesus. And so that's what we're doing here in the Gospel of Mark. And we're already, as Joel again prayed, Mark moves rapidly. Uh, the key word in the Gospel of Mark is this word in our English language, immediately. And if you, you, there, you almost work up a sweat uh, reading through the Gospel of Mark because there's so much 
constant movement and action. And immediately Jesus did this. And immediately he went here. And immediately this person came to him. And immediately he went to the, And you're just like, you know, almost panting as you read through the Gospel of Mark because it's moving so rapidly. And one of the things that Mark is doing is he is very quickly, Mark is made up of 16 chapters. And the first eight chapters are really the lead up to Christ's passion. And Mark spends the, the second whole half of his gospel account dealing with the events surrounding uh, the passion of Jesus Christ. As we said already that all of the gospel narratives, but maybe even most especially this first one, the first one that was written, the gospel of Mark, are really passion narratives with long introductions. And so Mark is trying to make a quick case for who this Jesus is. As I said, that is a couple weeks ago, that is really uh, the key question in the Gospel of Mark is who is this Jesus? And Mark wasted no time telling us who Jesus was. In the beginning of the, in the, this is, he says, verse one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. So Mark makes this proclamation, this declaration right at the outset, the very first line of this gospel narrative. There's no mistaking, there's no room left for any kind of gray area based on what Mark is saying. He is saying that Jesus, this Jesus that he is writing about, is in fact the Christ, meaning the Messiah, the promised, prophesied about Messiah of the Jewish Old Testament scriptures, and he says, the Son of God. But then as we journey through Mark, we see other people in the narrative wrestling and struggling with this question of who is this Jesus. And interestingly enough, coming to erroneous conclusions, false conclusions, wrong conclusions. And yet it will be at the end of this gospel Remember, as we said on the very first week in our introduction, where was Mark writing from? He was writing from Rome. And he was writing this gospel narrative originally for the church in Rome. And it is at the end of Mark's gospel, in fact, a Roman centurion standing at the foot of the cross who will actually answer the question correctly. Surely, this man was the son of God. So already we've begun to see a bit of conflict. Remember last week as we looked at Jesus healing the man with the unclean spirit. Pardon me, my apologies. 
Jesus is in the synagogue in chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. We see him casting out this uh, unclean spirit out of this man. And already we, we begin to see that questions are coming and, and conflict is beginning to arise as people see the works of Jesus and they don't know what to do about it. They don't know, they don't know how to fit him into their uh, pre-existing uh, categories. And so even as they witness this thing uh, of the man with unclean spirit being dispossessed, uh, they say among themselves, what is this? A new teaching with authority. Again, they missed, they missed it. Instead of saying, who is this with this authority? They thought, what is this, this teaching? Uh, which is so often what we end up doing. We see something is working for somebody and we want to adopt their principles and, and their teaching. Oh, who are you following? What are you listening to? Oh, let me try and adopt that for myself. And, and this is what they're trying to do because they're like, man, imagine walking out of synagogue that day, right? <laughs> Coming to Sabbath meal. Wow, synagogue was on fire today. Did you see what happened? That guy just, I mean, that unclean spirit came out. Man, if we could just teach like that Jesus guy did every week, synagogue would be lit. You know, like this would be awesome. You know, we'd really pack this place out if we did that. And that's really what they're trying to do. They really don't want Jesus. They want what they think maybe Jesus can give them. And, and so in that, you're going to see that conflict is going to continue to rise there with that. As people don't quite know uh, what to do with Jesus, especially the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees. Uh, meanwhile, we're going to see masses of people who are hungry. They're hungry for uh, Jesus. They're hungry for uh, the work of his ministry, following after him, seeking after him, uh, so much so that we could see at the end of chapter one uh, already, it says that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. And so then Mark launches into this narrative about the healing of the paralytic men. And what do we see? We see those masses thronging at the house of Jesus. Here we see that he had returned to Capernaum. It's reported that he was at home. And tradition says that during the time of his ministry, after he had left his father and mother's house, that he made his home in Capernaum. And so here, perhaps even staying uh, in Peter's house, and many, it says, were gathered so that there was no more room, not even at the door. Um, it, it's not often that we see this kind of thronging anymore. But if you could imagine, uh, uh, perhaps you've seen, uh, there may be some here uh, that are old enough to remember, but maybe have seen uh, video footage or, or remember hearing stories about the Beatles coming to town and the kind of masses that would throng uh, to try and press in and see the Beatles would even lead uh, John Lennon uh, to famously or infamously say that they were more famous than Jesus. That's not the case. Uh, but it had that kind of, of, of experience that was going on. People were thronging. This is more than just a gathering. This is a, a mob almost of people who are pressing in 
trying to get close to Jesus. They had heard the stories, perhaps already, of the man with the unclean spirit who was delivered. They had heard the stories of Jesus delivering Peter's own mother-in-law from this fever. All the other masses of people that were healed on that day. Maybe even have heard about the leper who even though Jesus told him to be quiet, went out and could not but help himself to declare the glories of God as he had been delivered from leprosy. And they came in and they're pressing in. And it's interesting, what is Jesus doing? They're pressing in. And this happens so often, even today, I believe. Uh, you know, we, 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 we love to say here that we need to win the people with what we plan to keep the people with. And other ways, we find other people trying to win the masses of people with all kinds of different new uh, gimmicks, uh, even going so far in some places to do all manner of things. We might rent a helicopter and drop candy from the sky and invite people to come. And that's, I mean, maybe they'll come and maybe you'll be able to preach the word to them on that day. But the question is, is that sustainable? Is that something you can continue to do? Are we going to rent a helicopter every week to invite people to come in and hear the preaching of the gospel? And the answer is no. We find this happening even with Jesus' own ministry and the miracles that he performs. People begin to press in and they're wanting the miracles and we'll begin to see a divide between those who are seeking the gift rather than the giver. Those who are seeking what Jesus can give to them rather than seeking Jesus himself. And, and so here we see he's in the room. And what is he doing? He's preaching the word to them. What does this mean? It means that he's expounding on the Old Testament scriptures. He's doing the same thing that we see in the other gospel narratives that he did when he was 12 years old in the synagogues. And it says that he is uh, asking questions of the rulers there in the synagogue, which was a Jewish form of reasoning, uh, that there would be questions that were answered with other questions rather than with answers. And so here we see they're amazed. Not only that, we see at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, what does he do? He goes into the synagogue. He picks up the scroll of Isaiah. He reads from Isaiah chapter 61 of uh, the one who would be anointed to preach the good news, to set captives free, to release those who are in chains, uh, to give them oil uh, of joy for mourning and all the rest. And Jesus expounds on those scriptures, but ultimately closes the scroll, stands up. And what does he say? This day, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Why? Because he is the Christ, the anointed one of God. And here he is, he's preaching the word to them. And as he is, suddenly, and imagine being there. Imagine being there. Imagine you were able to actually get into the room. And you're trying to listen to Jesus, this one who is teaching with a kind of authority that you've never experienced before. You see the difference between the way Jesus is teaching and the scribes that you have heard teaching all of your life. And there's something there. Maybe you don't even know what it is, but perhaps you're already beginning to think. You're already beginning to wonder, to question in your mind and in your heart yourself. Could it be? Is he the one? Is this the Christ? 
Is this the one that God promised so long ago would come as the seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head? Surely we've seen him already exercising dominion over the kingdom of darkness when we saw him cast out the demon in the synagogue. Surely we've seen his authority over sickness and disease, which of course is a product of the fall. Could it be this is he? And with rapt attention, you're trying to hang on every word that Jesus is saying. Only there's one problem. Stuff keeps falling on your head. Houses at that time were made, not necessarily from brick and mortar, but from uh, mud and thatch. And these houses would be uh, literally baked in the sun until they were hardened. But you could still dig, literally dig through these houses. They would be built normally as one-story dwellings with stairs on the outside to the roof. Because in the hot days, when they would transition into cool nights, you would not want to be inside this literal brick oven, so to speak, uh, or this clay oven, but rather they would go upstairs and they would, in the cool of the night, take their respite there. They would have meals, they would entertain, uh, in the coolness of the breeze up on top of the houses. This is why the Old Testament law would call for the building of what's called parapets outside of the homes, which was a way of catching anyone that might accidentally fall off of their roof. Why don't we have these anymore? Because we don't spend time on our roofs. Uh, but if we did, we might want some manner of being able to protect those who are up there. And so it was not unusual for people to be on the roof. And perhaps people were already even trying to hang off the side and listen if they could. But we find four men bringing a friend. And we see in them this great motivation to get close to Jesus. There are multiple times in the gospel accounts where we will see uh, this kind of approach to Jesus. That someone will come with such unction that Jesus will regard that unction as faith in action for them. Lest we forget that faith without works is dead. And here these men's faith is demonstrated by their action as they do whatever it takes, including the destruction of their neighbor's property to dig through this roof. And begin to lower, in the other accounts it lets us know by cables, their friend down at the feet of Jesus. So imagine being there and rubble starts to hit your faith. And at first you kind of knock it away. Like, what, what was that? I'm trying to listen to Jesus. And suddenly a little pinprick of light comes and hits you in the face. You're like, what's going on? And you begin to see the, the ceiling pulled away and who knows maybe feet first how, how did this go I don't know but use your imagination this man begins to be lowered down at the feet of Jesus it doesn't take long to realize that as he perhaps even as he struggles with 
the, the ropes and the cables, or even as he just lands on the floor, that this man is not well. He is he is has no power of function in his own body, he is paralyzed. And even though Jesus is teaching, you know, this wasn't a part of the service order, this wasn't a part of the liturgy for the day. You know, it's teaching time. We're preaching here. Jesus does not ignore the man, but looking upon him. And, and, and listen to what it says in verse 5. And when Jesus saw, and I love that he, he sees it. He sees it because their faith is in action. But it doesn't say that he saw his faith, but he saw their faith. He saw their faith, meaning not just this man, but even his four friends that had brought him here and lowered him down in front of Jesus. It says that he saw their faith and he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Again, here, like when we saw Jesus reaching out and touching Peter's mother-in-law as she had the fever unto death. Or even as we saw him reaching out and touching the leper. Here, even in the way that Jesus approaches this man, even disregarding the interruption, he looks upon the man, he looks upon his friends, he sees their faith, and he speaks to him with affection. That's why the word son is given there for us. It doesn't say, man, your sins are forgiven. It doesn't say, hey, bud, your sins are forgiven. It says son. And this is not a normal word that one man would use with another, but it was a term of endearment, of, of affection. And he says to him with affection, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some might look at that and say, wow, Jesus really swung on and missed on that. Can't he see that what this man really needed was healing of his legs? To be given autonomous power over his body, that he could, his muscles could work, that he could live, move, and, and be active? Isn't that what this man needs? But Jesus reaches to the very core of this man's problem which is the core of all of our problems. Understanding that his condition was a result of the fall. That what this man needed more than anything is the same thing that all of us need more than anything. And that is the forgiveness of our sins. Now, was this man paralyzed because of a particular sin that he had committed. There's no indication of that in the text. And that's not what Jesus is saying. Rather, Jesus is reaching into the core of this man and healing the one thing that will never go away. You see, even in healing his body, the presence of sin in our world today would mean that he would be able to get up, he would walk, he would go about his business. He would experience a quality and a kind of life that he had never experienced up until that point. But the clock was ticking. He did not find the fountain of youth in Jesus. 
he would not then be forever healed. With each click of the talk, with each passing day and week and month and year, his body would begin to break down again. And ultimately, he may, if God gave him long life, find himself needing the help of friends for mobilization again. But the kind of healing that Jesus offered to this man on that day was not a temporary healing. It was an eternal healing. Saying to him, your sins are forgiven. And how gracious was this? That Jesus... Did Jesus have to say it in order for it to be so? Was it an incantation? Were they magic words? The answer is no. But he says these words of absolution over this man so that he may know beyond a shadow of a doubt that his healing internally and externally was from God and not from man. And that the healing of his soul would be something that no one, not even time, could take away. So he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And it says, now some of the scribes were sitting there and noticed that we begin to see how uh, these scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders, begin taking time out of their busy schedules to follow Jesus around, to listen to what he was saying, perhaps putting him to the test, trying to maybe see for themselves, but ultimately it will become a point of contention and conflict. And immediately as Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, the gauntlet has been cast. And these men respond initially, not out loud, but in their hearts. And what do they say within themselves? Why does this man speak like that? It was one thing to, to say that maybe this man had a kind of spiritual authority that we hadn't seen before. Maybe he is, in fact, a prophet. Remember that this will be, uh, as Mark builds to this uh, crescendo at the halfway midpoint of his gospel, it will center around Jesus asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? And what will some of the people say? They'll say, he was a prophet. He, he spoke with authority, he operated in miraculous miracles. At the very least, it seemed reasonable that Jesus might be a prophet. That he would have some kind of spiritual authority granted by God that was a special kind of gift unlike other people around them may have had. But here Jesus crosses a line. For not even Elijah or Moses himself could say to anyone, Son, your sins are forgiven. And so what do they say? They they make an accusation, a claim within their own hearts that if it were any other man would be a reasonable accusation and claim. He is blaspheming. 
Because in their hearts, what are they saying? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But that was the whole point. Is Jesus was not a mere man. Jesus is the third person. Uh, or, well, he's one of the three persons of the Trinity. The Son of God. And as the Son of God, he has authority as God to forgive sins. And so this is what he was saying. Jesus, and, and, and he demonstrates that authority. He demonstrates his true identity by perceiving their thoughts. And again, Jesus could have just left them to their thoughts. He could have just been quiet about it. But instead, he calls it out. Why? So that they themselves would have to grapple and wrestle with the fact that this man who cast out the unclean spirit, who healed the lepers, who healed, who, who spoke over this man here and said his sins were forgiven, might be God in the flesh. Because he perceived their own thoughts. And he said, why do you question these things in your hearts. And he asked them a question. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? The question seems absurd. What do you mean, which is easier? Both of these things are impossible for us. Both of these things are impossible for us. If you think back to our time of going through uh, the Lord's Prayer last year, and remember in Luke, we're dealing with the Lord's Prayer, that's that little section talking about um, uh, worrying and the provision of God. And Jesus says to them, which of you by, by worrying about it can add one hour to your lifespan? Remember that. And then what's the next thing Jesus says? If you cannot do so easy a thing as that. If you cannot do so easy a thing as that. In other words, for, for Jesus to, to prolong our life is nothing. To add an hour, a day, a year. We see that demonstrated in the Old Testament with one of the kings. He's going to die prophet comes, they pray. God says, okay, I'm going to extend your life. It's nothing for him. Nothing is impossible for God. And that's kind of the point. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise, pick up your bed and walk. The, end, the question is absurd. It, 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 it must have dumbstruck them. Like, what do you mean, which is easier to say? Can we say to this man, rise, pick up your bed and walk? He's paralyzed. Nor can we say his sins are forgiven, for no one can forgive sins but God. And again, that's the point, because who else can say to this man, rise, pick up your bed, and walk? And listen to what Jesus said. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed. Again, just imagine being there. I mean, the man himself, 
I wonder what he must have been thinking. Muscles that had never worked for him for who knows how long in his life, perhaps ever. And by the healing virtue of Christ himself, this man picks up his bed and went out before them all. How many people outside of that room had been there pressing in while these friends were trying to get there. Please, please, excuse me. Please, can we get through? We just want to get to Jesus. Hey, I got here first. Wait your turn. You know, if you would have got your lazy self out of bed and brought your friend over here earlier, you might have got here closer. But I'm here. Wait your turn. Isn't that kind of taking it too far? Based on the motivation of these men willing to actually tear the roof apart, do you not think that they tried to actually get into the building politely? Obviously, they were detained. And then imagine being there as the crowd begins to part out of the way. And you see this man that was once on a stretcher walking, carrying his bed. What do they say? They're getting there. They're getting there. Listen to the way Mark describes this. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Now, it's hard not to believe with the rest of what we're going to go through in the Gospel of Mark that Mark is not doing this on purpose. Because listen to what they said. They didn't say, we've never seen anyone like him before. But rather, we've never seen anything like this. Again, they're they're missing. They're missing the point. What is the point? The point is, as Jesus proclaimed at the beginning of his ministry, that the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And how do we know? Because the king is here. This is going to be the point in our third vignette. But let's move quickly to the second one. Jesus calls Levi. It says Jesus went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. Again, he's teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth and said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, some things that we need to understand about this. Number one, because the Sea of Galilee was such a hot spot of commerce, Levi was being a shrewd tax collector. Because he has literally set himself up at the point where people are going to and from the market with their, their catches. And he's charging basically toll and tax, not only on their passage, but as well as upon their goods and services. 
approaching tax season. Many of you have probably already taken care of that delightful chore every year. I, there is, I just, I, I can't stand doing my taxes. I hate it. It drives me up a wall. Maybe I'm alone in that sentiment. I don't know. I mean, we can just presume, right, that Levi was like the most liked person in Capernaum at that time. Don't you think? That specifically these four fishermen that we already know are traveling with Jesus, Peter and Andrew, James and John, that, that, uh, I mean, they were, Levi's probably like their best bud. Don't you think? No. <laughs> no. And not only that, what we know about Levi here because of his name, that Levi was a Jew. And this is what the Roman provinces would do. They would take Jewish people who were willing, which weren't many, to basically set themselves up as betrayers of their own people to collect taxes. And this is how it would work. They weren't necessarily paid by the Roman providential rulers, but these tax collectors would put in bids to the Roman provincial rulers saying, here's how much I think I could bring in for you this season. And the winning bidders would get the job and they would go out and they would collect those taxes, but they did not collect those taxes for free. So how would they get paid? Whatever they had bid out to the Roman provincial rulers, they would tack on their cut. So that when you had to come and pay your taxes, you weren't just paying the Romans, which was bad enough. You were now also having to turn over some of your goods to this Jewish betrayer. And you watched him get richer and richer and richer and richer as he literally, in two ways, stole from his own people. Now it's interesting to think about Mark building a case and increasing the kind of miracles and things that Jesus was doing in his ministry. There is a, a building progression that's going on and you may not catch it at first unless you understand. What have we seen so far? We saw Jesus cast out the unclean spirit in the synagogue. We see him healing Peter's mother-in-law who was sick with a fever unto death. We see him healing the leper, and now we've seen him healing this paralytic man. Now, there were some religious rulers of that day that practiced exorcisms. We have reason to believe that there were some who even did it successfully. That there were people that from time to time were delivered 
from evil spirits by the religious rulers of that day. Not with the same kind of authority that Jesus did, but it did happen. It was even possible that someone who had a fever unto death might recover and get well. And it was even possible, though highly unlikely, that someone who had contracted leprosy might get well, and the Jewish people had a case for that. At the very least, in Naaman from the Old Testament Scriptures, who was healed by the prophet Elisha when he bathed in the Jordan River seven times. So it was not outside the realm of possibility that that could happen. But a paralyzed man, picking up his bed and walking, now we're moving into uncharted territory. But listen to me. As unclean as the Jewish people viewed those who had the disease of leprosy, there was a lower designation of disdain, a greater pariah upon their lives than the unclean masses. And guess who that was reserved for? Tax collectors. Maybe Jesus could heal a leper. But a tax collector is a tax collector is a tax collector is a tax collector forever. It's the kind of person that in our own vernacular might say there's a special place in hell reserved for that guy. That's the kind of vitriol and emotional response that the Jewish people held for tax collectors. And what do we see? We see Jesus walk past Levi's booth. Now, here's Levi with his booth along the Sea of Galilee. What just happened shortly before? If we remember Peter fishing all night and catching zero and Jesus coming along that same sea telling Peter to cast his nets over on the other side and then bringing in a miraculous catch of fish. I wonder how much money Levi made on that catch of fish. If he missed that day sitting at the tax booth, you better believe he was kicking yourself. This is kicking himself for it. Was he a witness to that miracle? How, how many things had he heard in the passers-by as they went from uh, on that sort of farm-to-market road or sea-to-market road as they took their fish and paid their tolls and paid their taxes to Levi along the way. And Jesus walks by. Imagine what it would have been to be Levi, seeing other people beginning to follow Jesus. 
perhaps even thinking to yourself, if only I wasn't a tax collector, if only I had made different choices, maybe then I'd, I'd follow Jesus. best and brightest? No. 
to bring other sinners and tax collectors to Jesus. Why? Again, the Pharisees, we start to see this conflict is starting to bubble up. It's becoming more apparent. There is a line, a divide between Jesus and the other religious mood, uh, leaders. And what do they say? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Who is this man? Who does he think he is? He's over here forgiving sin, and then he's there partying with sinners. What does Jesus say? Words that ought to be words of comfort to every single one of us in this room today. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You know, just blows my mind that in our day we would see what used to be a caricature of absolute foolishness become a reality in some places, and that would be hospitals that don't want to deal with sick people. It's meant to be a caricature of absolute foolishness. I even remember one preacher telling a story of reading a certain part of the newspaper where people used to to, to call in and they would gripe and complain about things. And there was somebody who worked in a hospital that wrote into this column, griping and complaining about all the sick people that kept coming in to the hospital. It's like, I think maybe you need to get a different job if you don't want to be surrounded by sick people. That's what hospitals are for. But what a comfort is it to know we see it demonstrated already by Jesus going into Peter's mother-in-law, touching the leper, healing the paralytic man, and reaching out to even a tax collector like Levi. That Jesus didn't come for the righteous. He didn't come to call those who already had all their stuff together. just comfort them in their ailments, 
but forgive their sins and heal them forever. The answer to Mark's question, who is this Jesus, begins to get a little bit clearer. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And just quickly look at this last section, 18 through 22. This interesting discussion about fasting. And what happens? They see Jesus partying at Levi's house. Levi was wealthy because of his tax collections. We know he left it behind, but yet still we see here he's in Levi's house and he's surrounded by other tax collectors and sinners. And I don't think that they were dressing in sackcloth and ashes and eating stale bread and water. They're feasting. Why? This man who perhaps believed even of himself that he was unforgivable has received in great portion the grace and the mercy of God extended to him through Jesus Christ the Son. They are partying. And the Pharisees look upon it. The religious rulers look upon it. And these were men who fasted on the regular, weekly. They had a stringent uh, uh, details of how they would fast, how they lived out what they believed was their piety before God. It's interesting to note that in the Old Testament scriptures, there was only one day in all the year that was a call for uh, mandated fasting, and it was the Day of Atonement. Now, Israelites regularly, Hebrews regularly, would practice different times and seasons of fasting. Fasting that was not the kind of fasting that we hear about today, where someone is like, man, I really need God to do this for me. I really want this job promotion, or I need to do this thing, and so I'm going to go and fast. And, and I really hope that through my fasting that I'm going to see this thing that I really desire come through. That kind of fasting is the same kind of uh, attitude and spirit that would say, uh, what is this, a new teaching with authority? It's seeking the gift rather than the giver. But fasting is meant to be a time where we set aside in our normal routine and rhythm something that is important to us for satisfaction, namely eating, to attend to prayer and intimacy with our God. It's not so that we can get God to do what we want, but rather so that we can find ourselves becoming in line with what He wants. Your will be done. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That is the true attitude of fasting. But these Pharisees had made a competition out of it. To see who could fast the most and the greatest. Not only did they do it amongst themselves, but they began to make the other people believe that this was a requirement for them as well. And we saw even John's disciples fasting. But here they look on Jesus and they look on his disciples, some of them whom were John's disciples. And they look disapprovingly upon what seems to be a change in their piety. 
You know, here are some of these men even who were who were following John. And we didn't really have a problem with that. Why? Because it seemed like they were following in the same kind of disciplines that we did. We looked and we knew that they were holy, but surely there must be something wrong now. Because all we see is them eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. So they asked him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, love Jesus' answer here. He says, And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Now, it's important to understand that a Jewish wedding is very unlike our modern Western weddings. You know, uh, when I do marriage counseling and there's some in this room I've had the pleasure of doing that with, one of the questions that usually comes up, especially after they hear me preach, is, uh, hey, preacher, how long is this wedding ceremony going to be? You know, what are, we, what are we looking at here? And I do my best to kind of keep it within it. I'm like, okay, based on this, it's going to be about this long. And it's like, wedding ceremony, reception, out of here. I mean, we might be packed up and done in, you know, five, six hours total. Wedding, ceremony, party, everything, clean up, we're gone. The Jewish wedding would last an entire week. An entire week, seven days of eating and drinking and celebrating and feasting for seven days. In fact, even in the case of someone losing a spouse to death and being remarried, that marriage ceremony would last three days. So even still, we're talking about a multi-day party. Now, there would be nothing more discongruous, meaning these things do not go together. They are not compatible. There would be nothing worse. And I'll just make it personal. Like my wife and I, when we had our wedding, we didn't have a ton of money. We had to do it on a shoestring budget, but we did it. We made it as best we can. And do you know how offended I would have been if someone would have come to my wedding and we had done everything we could to, to, to prepare these things for these people, if they would have come in and said, oh, you know what, brother? Thank, thank you, thank you, but we're fasting. We're not going to eat tonight, but, you know, thanks for thinking of us. Now, I probably wouldn't have done this, but let me tell you what I would have wanted to do. Get out! Get, leave! Be gone! Get out of my way! You are not welcome here anymore! Why? Because it's a wedding! It's a time of celebration. It was the happiest day of my life. And when I invited these people, I was inviting them into my joy. You're going to come to my wedding and fast? Are you crazy? Get out of here! Now, I probably wouldn't have done that. But that's what I would have wanted to have done. Because I am 
We're sinning. <laughs> but that's not wholly unrighteous. There, there's a time and a season for everything. And a wedding is not a time for fasting. In fact, I'm going to encourage you right now. If you are ever in a situation and the Lord's led you to a fast, you believe that, that's something that you've made a discipline, and you are invited to a wedding, go and do not fast at that wedding. Don't do it. Go and celebrate and eat. And when you come home, you can start fasting again. Now you take that up with the Lord. I can't make you do that. But I would encourage you to do things in keeping with the circumstance. And this is what Jesus is saying. He says the wedding guests, not, not only do they not, it says they cannot. They cannot fast. As long as the bridegroom is present, as long as the wedding party is there, and this is going on, they cannot fast. You want to fast, you need to go home. You need to leave the celebration. But why would you do that? I just, I just don't like having fun. I don't enjoy parties. I don't enjoy good food and good drink. I would rather eat stale bread and drink water. Because that makes me holy. That's the way the Pharisees were living. But Jesus is saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. The king is here. The bridegroom is here. This is not a time for fasting. This is not a funeral. It's the, it's the entrance to the wedding. The bridegroom is here. He was speaking, of course, of himself. What does he say? He says the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. Why? Because it's congruent. It's in keeping with the circumstance. It is right for us to fast in anticipation of the Lord's return. Does that mean that we must go on fasting day in and day out, every day, forever? No. But it's congruent with the understanding that we are in the already, not yet. There are things that we have foretasted of God's goodness and grace through His Son, and yet there is so much more coming that we do not yet have possession of, yet the Lord has given us the Holy Spirit as a down payment for it, and so we enter into times where we purposefully put ourselves in a place of contemplation, put ourselves in a place of drawing near to the Lord through fasting and prayer and intimacy with Him, so that we might even celebrate all the more the things that He has given us and the work that He's doing in our life, and most especially, what we know is coming. The hope of the glory of God. Because if the bridegroom has left, trust me, He's coming back again. And where will we be? We will be seated at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And that is not a time to fast. It is a time to celebrate. Amen? He goes on to show the same kind of discongruency when he says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it and the new from the old. Now, I've never done this. I don't patch my own clothing. Praise God for a wife who's able to do that for me. But I kind of get what Jesus is saying. I have washed clothes, new clothes, and have them come back much smaller 
than they were when I put them in. It's always frustrating. But this is what would happen if you took a new garment and you patched it into an old garment. There are a couple of things that are going on here. One, that's really foolish. Number one, because think about taking, oh, let me go down to the store. I have a hole in my old clothing. I'm going to buy a new piece of clothing. Spend money on it. Get it brand new. Bring it home. I'm then going to cut out of this brand new piece of clothing that I bought and patch the old piece of clothing. What's happened? Now, my new piece of clothing also has a hole in it. That's silly. Not only that, if I haven't used pre-shrunk material, if I patched the old piece of clothing and then washed the garment, that new piece of clothing is going to shrink and now be smaller than the hole that I was patching, which means it's going to pull away from the old garment and make the tear worse. Seems like common sense. Jesus is saying there's a new thing going on here. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. God is at work. And you're trying to come and implement all these things that are not congruent with what God is doing. He says in the same manner, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Often they would use goat skins or even bladders uh, to keep their wine in. They would put new wine in these goat skins. And because the goat skins were fresh, they were pliable, they could stretch, they could expand. And as the wine would continue to ferment and release gases, that goat skin would expand. But it can only expand so much. Right? You ever taken a balloon, kids, and blown it up and blown it up and blown it up and blown it up until it bursts? No matter how big that balloon is, there is a stretching point beyond which it can stretch where it will then pop. It will blow up. It will burst. And that's what would happen if you took then old wineskins that had already been expanded to the furthest point of their expansion you put new wine in them and that wine continues to ferment and release gases and it has nowhere to go because that skin is already stretched out it will burst the wine skin now you have no wine and no wine skin rather old wine is in old wine skins and new wine is in fresh wine skins it's interesting that Luke in his gospel account makes one additional uh, comment or commentary here on this story. And he says, and no one who drinks the old wine readily accepts the new for the old is better. The old is better. And I ask you, what was new in this circumstance entirely. It was the strict asceticism of the Pharisees that had been superimposed upon God's law that was new. Where they were trying to force even things that God himself, as strict as the law of God is, had not imposed on the people. 
Now it used to be that the way that you made wine was by stomping it. You'd put it, if you've ever seen I Love Lucy and that famous uh, episode with I Love Lucy where she goes to Italy and they, they put the grapes in the big vat and, and they stomp the grapes. That's what they used to do. But you can only do that effectively with very ripe grapes. But as technology advanced, they found that if you got a vice that could go down inside of that vat and you could crank that vice down, that you could get juice from grapes that even weren't that ripe. Which means what? You could harvest sooner, you could press those grapes, and you could get juice from those grapes even sooner. The problem is, is that that juice initially is not sweet at all. It's sour because the grapes haven't been given time to properly mature and to ripen. And so more and more has to be added to that particular juice in order to even make it palatable to receive and to drink. But God had already done a good thing. And Jesus was coming and he was proclaiming the kingdom of God and the grace of God but the grace of God was not new. The grace of God was what God had promised all the way back at the beginning and what we even read about today in Genesis chapter 15 in God's covenant with Abraham. Why? Because as the one who had authority, God did not make Abraham walk through the divided pieces of sacrifice, but rather God himself Symbolized by the smoking pots went through the divided pieces. What do I mean? When covenant was made in those times, what would happen is a covenant would be made because there would need to be some kind of treaty between two different peoples. Usually there was one who was in greater authority, had greater power, had greater uh, availability to uh, protect the lesser person. And the lesser person would come and say, I will put myself essentially in your service. I will make myself available to you to make myself valuable to you in such a way if you will protect me. And the person who is doing the protecting says, here, I'm the one that's going to be going out on a limb and putting myself at risk to protect you. What will you uh, do in order that I may know that you will not betray me to someone else? And they would come and they would make a sacrifice to whatever gods they had. And they would divide that sacrifice. They would tear the animals in two, a bloody sacrifice. And they would walk through the divided pieces. The person who was asking for protection would walk through the divided pieces. And they would essentially say, may it be done unto me as has been done unto these animals. If I go back on my word, if I fail to keep my part. Now, who, who had the greater authority or power in Abraham's situation? Was it God or Abraham? It was God. So who should have been the one that walked through those pieces saying, may it be done unto me if I cannot keep my end of the deal? It should have been Abraham. But God does something that we don't know that he had ever done since the beginning of the world, 
when he put Adam to sleep and brought Eve from his side, he puts Abraham into a deep sleep. He immobilizes him. So that there was no way that Abraham could fight and claw his way through to get through those pieces. And rather, God himself goes through the divided pieces, essentially saying, Abraham, may it be done unto me if you are not able to keep up your end of the deal. Was Abraham able to do it? Remember, the covenant was unto him. And what? And unto the rest of his descendants for eternity. Was Abraham able to do it? Were his descendants able to do it? No, they were not. But God extended grace. He said, may it be done unto me. And at the cross, it was. Jesus paid the price for Abraham and all of Abraham's descendants family tree that every true believer in Jesus Christ has been grafted into and been called the child of Abraham. The same Jesus who taught with authority and cast out demons and healed the paralytic man who called tax collectors and sinners who looked upon them with grace was bringing ushering in the grace of God that had always been there already back to his people so that they could taste and see that the Lord is good that his yoke is not burdensome or heavy but that he the one who had created and made them life into them was the one who was also coming to redeem them and offer up himself as a sacrifice for their sins so that he could say with authority, son, daughter, child, your sins are forgiven so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Amen? Would you stand with me as we pray today? Father, I thank you for your word today. A reminder to us that you are the one. You sent your son to be our redeemer. The one who has the authority, who has the ability, and yet had the affection to look upon sinners like us and say, I choose you. Come, follow me. To look upon us who are weak and powerless to move ourselves to you, yet by your Spirit you draw us to yourself and you raise us up like the paralytic man. You reach into the core of who we are and you heal the thing that is most necessary. And you forgive our sins through the person and work of Jesus Christ. I pray that today our hearts would be in awe of your grace. That even as we come to the table today, 
than with this small taste of bread and wine. Our taste buds will be awakened with a desire for the feast to come. Be with us now, we pray. Holy Spirit, do what no man can do. Open our hearts to the ministry of your word. In Jesus' name.